Blog Talk Radio. Get ready for another episode of Sherry Clip with your host, Sherry Johnson. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show tonight. Welcome to Sherry Clip. I am here with a very special guest. I've been excited all week to have him on. I am here with Dr. Raymond Youngblood, and I'm going to welcome him to the show at this time, and he can tell you who he is and what he's all about. Hey, Sherry, how are you? How are you how's the audience? I am uh, good. Dr. Raymond yeah, Youngblood. Looking good. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, do you want me to finish introducing myself, Sherry? Yep, go right ahead. Yep. Okay. I'm Dr. Raymond Youngblood, international gold miner, primarily operating on the continent of Africa and South America, and recently just started a project here in the U.S. with a permit from the Army Corps of Engineers, um, working with the Mississippi River and the Red River. Wow. So you're all the way down doing all this. What what got you into this? Well, the the first thing was um, I started actually in college brokering with uh, timber. That was the very first thing. I had some classmates that I went to college with, undergrad, and they were from African countries. Most of those guys played soccer. I played basketball. And we kind of had a commonality with uh, lifting weights in sports. And so that just bled over into our personal vendetta. And then afterwards, uh after college, I stayed in contact with a lot of these guys and ended up overseas from their home countries of what is Angola, Liberia, Ghana, Sudan, different places like that. And and a lot of these guys were from the villages. So that is naturally how I migrated into it. Basically starting with, with timber. Oh, wow. It was was it the timber down in these in, the, in another country that got you interested, or here in the United yeah. States? Well, where I'm from, we do a lot of timber cutting here. There's a lot of lumberjacks in um, in Africa. They say timberjacks. So, mm-hmm. and my family was also involved heavily at one time in a type of timber called puckwood, um, where basically everybody around here cut logs or trees or some sort. And um, so I knew all about that business and ended up when I went overseas, it just happened to be a natural fit for me to, um, with some of these villages where they have an abundance of of timber and different species of trees, of course. And so I had some friends that I also connected with that were in India, China, uh, Korea, and these different countries. And so basically I was just like the go-between guy between these guys that had the timber in their villages and then these buyers overseas that needed it. Well, while I was moving around in the in the jungle basically with timber, you come across all of these mining companies, basically little small-scale miners, guys basically out there with picks and shovels, um, you know, moving earth uh, by the ton on a daily basis, some into gold, some into diamonds, some rubies, amethyst, uh, titanium, platinum, you name it, these guys were mining it. 
And it just kind of caught my eye to to a point to where when you it's almost like um how can I say uh, if if you're a plumber and you go to somebody's house and you fix the kitchen pipes, then automatically they think that you can fix the bathroom pipes. And sooner or later, before you know it, they ask you, do you know somebody who can do the roof? And before you know it, they're asking you, you know somebody who know how to pour concrete? And so it just it just migrated naturally into all these other things. But originally it started with my connections from college. Wow. That is really interesting. So you're you're telling me you're out there cutting this wood and you see these guys mining. And so you, that draws your interest then towards mining. How do you go from one to the other, though? Do these people just allow you to come into this village and or these, no. this area and start I mining? Wish, I wish it was that easy. Um, for me, it was, it was all about building relationships. That was the first and foremost. Country board like myself from the backwoods of Louisiana, you know, you, you automatically have that friendly approach to people, that trusting attitude to people. And then naturally, that was very natural for most of the foreigners that I dealt with, or, or I guess I could say that in the countries that I dealt with because I was actually the foreigner because I was in their country. So it, it was just a natural fit. Um, but mainly getting friendly with the with what what in, in Africa and South America, there's two types of government. The first type of government is central, which we know very well here. Well, we refer to it as the central government, but we call ours federal government or state government. And that's the president, vice president, you know, the House of Representatives, the Senate, and then on the other end, local-wise, will be the governors and uh, uh, lieutenant governors. And in these countries, they have basically that same hierarchy. Well, and then it bleeds over into another area of government, which, which is normally referred to as traditional. This is before the central government, before a lot of these countries were colonized. They had what is called a uh, traditional government, which includes the paramount chiefs or kings and queens, elders, uh, youth leaders, women leaders, and these types of people. So I've naturally bonded with that group uh, very extensively. And... It, it became one of those things to where, for example, I'll give you a friend of mine who one of the villages I first cut timber out of, uh, his dad was a paramount chief. And so he saw me just like an extension of his kids. And, you know, the first thing he told me was he said, well, Raymond, I don't, we don't cut timber. We don't know how to cut timber. And he said, uh, but my son is saying that you know how to cut timber. And I said, well, Chiefs, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to start with one tree at a time. That's, that's basically how you cut timber. First tree comes, then the second tree comes, and then the third. And then so on, next thing you know, you have you have a logging business. And uh, it was a lot of mistakes in the beginning, of course, with me, because one of the things that I, I learned early on was find a buyer before you cut the trees. So it's, it's the same with the, with the mining, because here you have an abundance of trees sitting down, uh, ready for shipping, and then and then now you got to go and look for somebody to buy it before the trees turn, you know, go bad or rot. So it's the same thing with the mining. The mining worked out the same way for me when I'm moving around, working with a lot of timber people. I ran across uh, miners in, in batches, and normally the small-scale miners, you normally will find them in such a capacity where it, it's not uncommon for um, – how can I say, um, to walk on a site and it'd be 
five, six hundred thousand miners on one site. That's that's not uncommon at all. Or definitely what's very common is five or six thousand people working one mining site. So you and then from there you basically just build your relationship, shake hands, that's how I basically start. Everybody's excited that, you know, you're a foreigner. Uh some people are very hesitant to deal with you because you're a foreigner. But from there it grew and I just grew the relationships over the last twenty years, starting with my friends from college and then using my Louisiana Southern hospitality kind of uh, persona to, you know, shake hands, be honest, be trustworthy. When you say something to people, you have to mean it. Don't say what you can't do. That's a that's a big lesson that you learn very quickly when you when you introducing yourself to these people. And, you know, and just be honest and flat out, uh, 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 how can I say, aggressive about what you want to do, but at the same time respect their culture, respect how they want to go about doing things. And then the biggest lesson learned for me was to remember that I wasn't in America. That, that was another big thing with, with getting to know these, these folks and working with them was I'm not in my country and how we do things here is not necessarily how they would do things there. And what I mm-hmm. saw was a problem was not a problem for them. And, and some of the things I thought that were okay you know, was a problem. So you just, it was a cultural learning experience, probably more so than a work learning experience. Right. Was was it very difficult for you to communicate with them down there? It was, in the beginning, it's quite funny, actually, Sherry, because what ends up happening is (laughs) a lot of times when, when you're coming from the U.S., Louisiana, especially, or the southern accent, it almost has the same kind of um, twang as what as, as in some of the countries. So very quickly when you start talking, people have a difficulty recognizing where you're from. So a lot of times people didn't think I was from the U.S. because they wasn't used to hearing the Louisiana twang. You know, they, it was it was a the dialect was a little <laughs> bit un, uncommon for them. They were used to hearing New Yorkers and and Midwesterners from the farming and the, and the mining and the other businesses, but they wasn't used to hearing Louisiana people from the South. So it was, uh, and then it, and for the for the other part, it was also quite easy too because most African countries, and uh, unlike South America, but they speak English. English would normally be one part of the languages that they speak, and most African countries too, they they have uh, probably. For example, you take Liberia, for example, it's predominantly English-speaking. Uh, Ghana speaks multiple languages, I think up to 26 languages, but English is one of the dominant languages. You can easily find somebody that will speak English, you know, unlike if you go to South America where it's predominantly Spanish or Portuguese. You can you can be in an area where nobody speaks English, but in Africa almost every nation has an English-speaking group. So communication wasn't that difficult. It was just more difficult to get convince people that I was an American. So, and then there's a difference between the Americans too, because there's an, a born American and a naturalized American, and and in some respect they're treated differently. So if you if you're born in America, you have a different level of respect than you have if you are naturalized American. But slowly that gap is is closing, and uh, and so. Just being an American is being respected, you know, worldwide. 
Right. Right. Hmm. Um, so did you go down there with a team of people or did uh, as miners or did you um, have the people there help you mine or both? Okay. Well, when I first got started, I was by myself um, and I was encouraged often not to go, more so than to go. I heard all kinds of stories. I heard everything from uh, King Kong to uh, African uh, people eaters to people shrinking your head. And you know, when I went to Colombia, I was I was also encouraged not to go because of the drug cartels and the kidnappings and all of these things. And so for me, it was it was a it wasn't that difficult of a choice because I saw it in two different ways. The first way I saw it was how is it that companies like Exxon Mobil and Chevron, no no nobody ate them. They wasn't barbecued and put on the grill and and and, and, and eaten. Nobody shrunk their head. Um, there was no no drug cartel that captured uh, Coca Cola that you know that's located now in South America. So it was quite difficult for me. So I, I got to thinking to myself that, okay, why is it that this group can go and there's no trouble, but if I go, then there's going to be massive trouble. Then I just realized it was just a fear of people having never gone outside of their comfort zone. For me, it was quite easy to go outside of my comfort zone. When you come from the levels of poverty that my brothers and I come from, you know, I, I, I saw that it can't be, there's nothing can be worse than where we are. And we right dab sled dab in the middle of America, uh, the richest country in the world, and yet I can go two or three days without eating, and then yet I, I'm gonna be afraid to go overseas and not eat. Well, hell, I'm not eating now, so I might as well go overseas and not eat. So that's how I saw it. And then the other aspect of it was to venture out. It was bothering me more not to go than to stay here. Because I was kind of closed off when you was when when you are a black American or an African American, whichever one people prefer, it doesn't matter to me. But when you when you are in that realm and you're speaking of something other than sports and music and hair and car dealerships, not to, not to typecast all blacks into that area because there's some into technology and medicine and so on. <clears throat> But for me to to even be talking about mining was just unheard of at all. It was almost like the first time I, I had interest from uh, uh, the University of Alaska to uh, Anchorage, I think, the uh, University of Anchorage, to, to play basketball there. And I was so excited that I even received a letter. Everybody, the first thing everybody around me would say was, don't go because you're going to freeze to death. So what about the people who sent me the letter? They haven't frozen them. What about the mailman who, who delivered it or the, the pilot who flew the mail out? So all these things were in, into my head about going and how to be there. So for me, it became a very, it became a very big telltale that either I can listen to the people that are encouraging me not to go or I can listen to my own instinct and say, okay, this is driving me. I go to sleep, I pray, I wake up, it's still driving me to go. 
um, there was no fear to go. It was more of a fear not to go. I was also afraid that if I did not proceed with the mission that that was set before me, I would be punished. And I I felt like that all the time. I don't mean to go into um, uh, talking about faith because uh, um, I'm, I'm far from that. But at the same time, it was it was like God saying to me, "You gotta go. These are the things I need for you to see. These are the things that I need for you to do. And it's not going to be easy. It's going to be harsh. It's going to be hostile. It's going to be different. You know, and this is what you have to expect. But if you look at how I grew up and what I'm doing now, it matched perfectly. It was almost like I was being groomed to do it. You know, so and then be able to get." multiple people who speak hundreds of different dialects to to walk into a village or to walk into a country and not understand a single word that anybody is saying, but yet everybody in the room has the same mission, it became natural for me. It was a natural fit for me to say, okay, let me find one translator who speaks this dialect. Let me go and find another translator who speaks this dialect, and let me have one common thing between these these guys, and that's mining, and then we'll be able to make up the rest from there, and we'll, and we'll be able to go from there. And so that's that's, that's how I saw it. I mean, it, it was uh, it was a little bit of faith, a little bit of curiosity, but more so a driven drive to just go and make it work. And as I said before, I'm in the greatest country in the world, and yet I was struggling. And I couldn't understand that. Everything around me was was um, was not what it was supposed to be, but at the same time, I had this drive to venture out and to go and do it. And then, you know, it became another little thing, too, like um, I went to the bank to get money, you know, to try to start a business, and nobody would lend me money, nobody would give me money. Either I was too young or I was too inexperienced <laughs> or um, – I, I hate to say this, but in some cases, I think it may have been I may have not been the right race, uh, that, and that happened far less than what I what I I think. And then, but for the most part, Sherry, it was just that I was too young, too inexperienced, and I didn't have the right pitch, and I didn't quite understand what I was doing. But I knew what I wanted to do, but I did not have the right pitch as to how I should go about doing that one thing, and so. And then it's, and when people look at you and they see a person who normally is not in an industry, it also scares them to know what could happen for me. Because even some of the bankers, when I said mining, they would say, are you sure you, you mean, you mean like, oh, you mean drilling for oil? I said, no, I mean mining. And they would say, you talking about like, like digging for minerals? Yes. And they would look at me like, are you sure? You know, you do realize that it's not common, right? Uh, not common for who? It's common for me, you know, and that, that's what I'm going to do. And so that's how I, that's how I developed it from from that standpoint. Wow. How how old were you? Just just wondering when you first started. Say again, Sherry. How how old were you when you first started asking? to do this mining and start a small business? 
Okay, the first time I probably, I think I would have turned 18 or 19 when I first got started. The first time I took a trip wow. overseas, uh, let me also say, too, that one of my first trips was a little bit illegal. I moved around into some countries illegally. I'm not ashamed or embarrassed to say that. Uh, um, as a matter of fact, I cannot be sitting, standing on the border of Ghana and then the Burkina Faso border is one mile over, and I I need some supplies. I tell you, I just drive right over there and get the supplies. I don't I don't not go to the border officers. But now in these countries, most of these people they know me very well, so they wouldn't. They, it's just be oh that's Doc, oh that's Doc, oh he's okay, he's okay. <laughs> but but before that, it wasn't you know that. But I was I was young. I was eighteen, nineteen. The first company I had, I tried to go into. Uh, which is what my undergrad study was in psychology. I tried to go into, I wanted to be a psychiatrist, or at least I thought I did. First, let me let me back up. I wanted to be a comedian. That was the first thing. I thought I was going to be a comedian. Don't ask me how. I, I had a very dry kind of comedy, but I thought I was funny. Then I realized that I wasn't going to be a comedian. I was going to be a chef. Mm-hmm. Then my brothers reminded me that my cooking was not as great as I thought it was because I was cooking for them a lot. <laughs> And then uh, I was going to be a state trooper. Then I even went to Kansas when I was in Kansas City. I even trained a little bit. I went through, uh, the uh, started going through the whole police academy thing there in Kansas City. And then it, then that's when that whole driven drive came back to me about going overseas. And it, it just, it could not leave. And I worked in some hospitals there and owned a little small home health business and um, did okay, but then it just and every dime I made, I sent overseas to fund my little mining operation. So if I made, if I spent any money, I uh, paid my bills and made a little bit in overtime, I would send the rest of it overseas, buying diesel, buying shovels, buying pickaxes. And then finally one day I said, you know what, the heck with it, I'm not gonna fight it anymore. I'm just going in full full steam ahead. And I'm, I haven't looked back since. And since that time, um, since that time, I really have. I made. I made two focus. The the first focus I made was to become representative of an industry that normally uh, doesn't doesn't have a good image, because I went into mining knowing that mining did not have a good image. Then the second aspect I went into it, who is going to benefit from this? Is is it me only that's going to benefit from it? Is it my family? What about these people that we're living around and they, you know, have all these minerals? I, I, I go to countries in Colombia, Peru, uh, Burkina Faso, Sudan, the Congo, you name it. These people walk on gold. They pee on gold. They sleep on gold, but yet they're living in adult poverty there has to be something. This is not. This is not how it was supposed to be. It can't be like this. And then from there, we extended it outwards to say, okay, how how I looked at everything was, okay. I have to go about doing this in such a way that it's a win-win-win for everybody. Meaning that the people that's involved win. The customers win. The environment win. I have to create three wins. I just can't create two. Most people say it's a win-win, but 
I saw different elements being being uh, missing that wasn't there that should have been there, and these are some of the things that I wanted to put into place. And then I think the overall big scale of it was it is a very brutal and hostile business mining. I have a I have a quick story I'm gonna tell you where um, there's an old miner in West Africa that I used as a consultant. And for many years he worked with me, and he had this raspy, raspy voice. And you have to pay very close attention to him when he when he's talking. And it was like, rah, 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 and, you know, when he would talk. And one day he sat me down and he said, Doc, he said, you're a young guy in this business. I was in my 30s at that time. He said, you're a young guy in this, in this business, and I want to explain something to you that I think is going to be important for your future. He said, your heart is in the right place, but your mind is not. And I said, Saka, what do you mean my mind is not? He said, you have the heart that anybody in any religion would feel comfortable with. He said, but I want you to change something in your mind. He said, I want you to behave, and this is the God of the truth, he said, I want you to behave more in the sense of mafia. When he said that, it, it kind of floored me for a second. I was like, mafia? I said, Saka, why would I behave like mafia? He said, I didn't say you had to do like mafia. He said, I said you had to <laughs> behave like mafia. So I said, isn't that the same thing? He said, no. He said, mafia protects their own. And he said, they can do bad to everybody else, but yet when you do bad to one of them, everybody come down on you. He said, that's the miners. He said, the miners want and need a leader. And he said, I'm telling you, that leader is you. He said, we are thousands of miners strong, and yet we have no direction and no focus. So he said, I want you to take a very strong look at that and consider that. So when I, I backed up a little bit, and over the years what I've done, Sherry, was I started looking at the small-scale miners in the form of the largest company on earth, 30 million small-scale miners worldwide, 30 million, extracting $20 billion in gold every single day, and yet they have no head. And over the years, one of the things that started happening to me was everywhere I went, the miners had the same story as that old man. Doc, we have no head. We need a head. We don't have the access to the communities that you have. As an American, nobody's going to turn down your passport. Think about it like this, Doc. If you as an American take our gold to Europe, nobody's going to argue the price with you because they're not going to argue the price with an American. But with us being from South America or from Africa, the first thing they want to do is they want to beat down our price. And that's not fair because the world market says we're supposed to get this, but yet everybody wants to pay us for a bag of rice for $100 worth of gold for a $10 bag of rice. And this is what we have to deal with on a consistent basis. So if you take the head for us, Doc, I'm so sorry. We got like two minutes left. (laughs) I wanted you to get. Yes. Um, Okay. But we'll definitely have to have, we'll have to make this part one. 
And we'll have okay. to have you come back again on the show again. How's that sound? That sounds perfect. Okay. <laughs> so uh, to all of our listeners out there, just pay attention. I will post the show again that I'll be talking once again with Dr. Raymond Youngblood, Jr. And we will have him on so he can finish his story about what's happening in, or happened in Africa with extracting minerals and how he got into this. So is that is that right? <laughs> that, that's right. Africa and South America. Can't leave out my South American brothers and sisters. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. And like I said, you guys, this is just part one of talking to Dr. Raymond Youngbert Flood. And we will see what happens and how he got into this in the next episode of Sherry Clip. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I thank you for your time. And we look forward to talking to you again. Okay, thank you, Chef. I want to make sure have people visit www.youngbloodindustries.com. That would be perfect. I appreciate it. Excellent. And you're also on Facebook, right? So they can find you on there as well. Yes, Dr. Raymond Youngblood. Excellent. Thank you all so much, and I hope everyone has a good night. Thank you. Thank you, Raymond. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.